This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode has been carefully curated from the Top of Mind archive, and there's a lot to choose from. We've been going in-depth with guests on the air every weekday since 2015, searching for new perspectives and ideas. I hope what you hear today makes you think about your world a little differently and sparks satisfying new conversations with the people in your life. Let's dive in. The grand vision of the National Park Service is to preserve America's wild spaces, ideally so that what you see today is the same landscape your great-great-grandkids will see when they visit Yellowstone or Yosemite or Acadia long into the future. But climate change is making the effort to preserve some native species of plants and animals virtually impossible. How should parks decide which changes to resist and which to accept? These questions are forcing the National Park Service to embrace an approach called climate smart conservation. It was pioneered by Bruce Stein, who is chief scientist at the National Wildlife Federation. And he's with us now on the line. Bruce Stein, thanks for your time. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be here, Julie. Share an example of something, a species or a landscape that's been iconic in a national park, but maybe won't be there in another 50 years. Well, let me give the example of Joshua Tree National Park, which was a place in Southern California, the Mojave Desert of Southern California, where I actually spent a lot of time when I was in high school. I was an avid rock climber, and that was a big destination. Um, Joshua trees, uh, they're not really trees. They're overgrown lilies, if you will. But they're an iconic, an iconic plant species, and they dominate that landscape. Um, they're really magical. Uh, but what we know is that as climate change proceeds, and it's not just warming temperatures, but it, it's changes in the precipitation, and particularly in that region and elsewhere in the southwest, uh, increasing dryness, um, we're starting to see that Joshua trees are not reproducing, that you're seeing uh, increased mortality. And if you look far enough into the future, uh, the national park we now call Joshua Tree could be without Joshua trees themselves. Mm. And that's a case where, I mean, is there anything that the Joshua Tree National Park managers have have been able to attempt that, that could potentially head that off? I mean, it's not like they can irrigate the park, right, if, if lack right, of water right. is an issue. Yeah, so, so that's exactly what we um, are talking about when we talk about climate smart conservation, or the, the more technical term is climate adaptation. What can we do to adapt to and adjust to these changes? Are there things that we can do to reduce the risk that we will lose these things or to increase the, the potential that, they, that we can continue to, to have them? And, you know, what you, what you start to see is that there's different approaches that can be taken. So there's, there's as you mentioned in the lead-up to this, there's uh, approaches you can use to resist. So uh, irrigation, now maybe not Joshua trees, but a little further north in California, Sequoia National Park mm. is already beginning to irrigate some of the giant sequoias mm. um, because, uh, again, they're, they're losing many of these. In fact, um, surprisingly, even these massive uh, giant sequoias are both succumbing to drought as well as to some of these uh, extraordinarily intense fires, these mega fires that, that we see. So, there and so in a case like that, and yeah, so, sorry, so, so in a case like that, then, if, if, you know, the park managers say we are Sequoia National for, 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 Forest, we, we need sequoias here. Some of these sequoias we can save, not all of them we can save. That's right. We'll pick strategically so that at least 100 years from now, there will be some sequoias here. That's exactly right. So a lot of it has to do with making these hard choices and strategic decisions about what we value most, what is within the uh, realm of uh, what's feasible to actually accomplish, and where we might actually need to either accept uh, these changes or even um, facilitate or, or direct uh, direct changes so that it comes out better than it might otherwise. Yeah, so expand. It's so interesting, this three-word mantra that you see popping up in the National Park Service guidance, uh, resist, accept, direct. The direct idea is really, really interesting to me. Expand on an example where where you could opt to say, okay, well, the way it is today is not going to be feasible in the future, but, you know, let's see if we can kind of point this in a direction that might turn out better for everybody. 
Right. And for an agency that was essentially established to try and preserve or restore things back to a historical condition, this notion of directing ecological transformation or changes is kind of mind-blowing. <laughs> Radical, you, yeah. Yeah. Let me give you a, a, a very specific example. In Glacier National Park, there's an endangered trout species called the bull trout. Uh, it uh, depends on very cold water. And as uh, water temperatures are warming due to general um, warming trends, um, it, it's increasingly uh, being constrained in where it can live. And, and in addition, it's being outcompeted in some places by uh, non-native invasive trout. And so the Park Service um, took the pretty radical step of actually moving some of these bull trout up higher into the watershed beyond some waterfalls that the invasive trout can't get to where the water is still cold and projected to remain cold into the future. So that's an example of, you know, what we're talking, that's an example of directing change. Okay, so the bull, the bullhead, you called the bullhead bull, trout? Bull trout. Okay, bull trout. the bull trout have never before in, in nature's natural state been in this new place where the Park Service put these fish? That's right. It, that high in the watershed, you know. So again, and that's why it's it's a um, challenge because before doing something like that, you you need to really study the implications. Because right, because how do you know to... you're not going to set off some sort of like um, domino effect that's going to force some other species that you care about <laughs> to have trouble? Well, well that, that's exactly right, and that's wh where there's a lot of heartburn over. Uh, uh, approaches for doing th this type of work, which is called assisted migration. Now, in this instance, the Park Service really did very exhaustive studies and, and looked in, into those, uh, those, uh, the possibility of those unintentional consequences. In other instances, uh, and not the Park Service, but there are, in fact, groups that are kind of shifting things around on the landscape, um, you know, moving them north, moving them higher in elevation, um, uh, in in more in less um, controlled assisted migration experiments, uh, plants and animals. Plants and animals, yeah. So plants. Uh, there's actually a very important um, pine species in the northern Rockies at high elevations, the white bark pine. Uh, important food for grizzly bear and other wildlife, uh, but but really not responding well to the increased heat and and the diseases that are being um, uh, amplified by that heat. And so there's actually um, experimentation in moving that white bark pine species uh, well outside of its historic range up in Canada and to see how it will do there. Now, obviously, the, the notion is that it, in that instance, it's unlikely to cause problems where it's being moved, but it's also not clear that it will actually thrive, survive or thrive in those areas. What... I mean, if you're going to move it that far away, what's what's even the benefit? It's just well, that the, benefit, the so, so the the notion is, is as that as climate warms, the habitats where uh, many of these species are uh, are living and have evolved will become climatically unsuitable, and um, so they will need to either naturally migrate up in elevation or northward in order to track suitable. Uh, suitable migration. In fact, I, um, I was actually involved in a in a scientific paper where we characterized the general uh, adaptive approaches as either persist in place or shift in space. So this is essentially people giving a hand to species that may need to shift in space in order to remain in their um, in a suitable climatic zone. So if you are a national park though, and or a manager of a national park, and you have you know, your park has boundaries. Yeah. Uh, um, if there's no suitable place to shift to in the park, there's no yeah. higher place to send your pine there, trees. There what in, do you do? Therein, therein lies the challenge. That's right. And so, you know, uh, what this what we're increasingly faced with is asking, you know, what is the which species in a given park are going to uh, remain um, robust and thrive in the future, in a climate-altered future, which of them are climate-vulnerable and may decline or even, uh, even be eliminated altogether. But on the other hand, there will be species naturally moving um, uh, northward or, or up in elevation. And so we also have to ask, you know, we, we often focus on what we're losing 
Um, but these places will continue to have ecological value. Hmm. It will be different, though. Right, because species that maybe weren't there before have moved north into where yeah, you are, while right. your the species you're used to have moved on somewhere else or gone away. Yeah, but, but this is really traumatic for uh, conservationists and conservation biologists like myself, to, you know, who, who have essentially um, spent our careers focused on protecting what little we still have or trying to restore back to what we've lost. And now to realize that that's no longer enough. We now have to really envision what the future is going to hold and how we're going to be able to uh, help species and ecosystems adapt to those future conditions. Bruce Stein, do you think it's it's possible that that whole concept of freeze it in time or turn back time you know, that, that that goal was wrong-headed to begin with? I wouldn't say it was wrong-headed to begin with. I would say that um, nature has always been dynamic, um, and the notion that um, there was one static point in time that we would want to keep things out or, or go back to uh, was, was probably unrealistic, but it wasn't, it wasn't wrong-headed in the sense of, um, uh, working to to preserve natural conditions, but here's to minimize thing. human to minimize human contact to, to, to minimize or impact. human Im- impact and impairment because uh, uh, on their own natural ecosystems and species actually have an amazing capacity to evolve and adapt, mm-hmm. but it takes time, and that's the problem. We've sped up the clock on these changes so dramatically. Um, you know, climate change is only one of the one of those things. But you know, the the kinds of human pressures we're putting on species, you know, extinction rates are up, but evolution rates are not going up. What What are the other pressures besides climate change that are uh, making it hard for natural systems to adapt successfully? So, uh, so in addition to climate change, uh, now not just on national parks, but uh, you know, habitat loss and degradation is the biggest impact on wildlife. Uh, now, national parks themselves are, you know, generally well protected from conversion to other uses, um, but, but we still see change in, in the natural conditions. So the fire regime, as an example, you know, if you, if you keep fire out of a forested system for long enough, a, a system that's uh, that's adapted and evolved to burn periodically. Mm. Then when fire comes in, it can be un- unusually severe and, and ecologically harmful. Uh, one of the other things is non-native invasive species. These are species that may have come from other continents um, and get a foothold here. And because they have no natural competitors or predators, they can really um, expand and outcompete and sometimes uh, just completely... Uh, alter and unwind the natural ecosystem. And also these these non-native invasive species often just happen to be um, more uh, tolerant of these changing changing conditions, right? Maybe they do better in heat or they do better in drought. Well, that's right. That's why we often uh, refer to climate change as a threat multiplier. So we talk about climate-related impacts because it's not just the direct effects of warming temperatures, or increased, um, her, you know, increasingly strong storms and hurricanes, or, or uh, increased drought. But it's also the fact that it makes invasive species more potent. It, it gives a leg up on um, the many uh, diseases of trees and wildlife. Uh, and so it's all these knock-on effects as well. Is there an example of a national park somewhere in the country where, um, uh, you know, they, they've been trying for years to kind of keep, to beat back an invasive species, a plant or an animal, so that it doesn't overrun? And now, because of climate change, the decision is maybe, well, we have to accept that this invasive species is now a dominant species in our, in our park. Well, there, there are parks that are having those hard discussions about, you know, how much energy to put into uh, controlling um, some of those invasive species. And I think that, the, the, you know, obviously keeping new invasive species out is going to be especially important mm. uh, in the future. And, and actually looking to see what species may end up um, moving into a park that are not there now and put those on a climate-informed watch list, if you will, for early detection and rapid 
uh, rapid eradication. Well, okay. So if the definition of an invasive species is something that doesn't that wasn't wasn't originally in the place where it currently is, um, if if we're having this migration happen of species that are native to one state south, but now they're all of a sudden moving north, <laughs> do we call that an invasive species uh, worth pushing that's a, back? That, that's a really interesting question. So uh, we often focus on non-native invasive species. Um, I, but the topic that you're bringing up, which is that if something is a native species uh, further south and moves north, how do we perceive that? And actually, there is a national park um, unit, Lake Mead National Recreation Area uh, in Nevada, that specifically decided, you know, we are not going to treat these native species that move north as invasives and try and eradicate them. We're going to acknowledge that that is part of a natural process that they're mm. moving in. So some people actually have coined the term neonatives <laughs> for these. <laughs> so we've been talking about this, um, sort of what this has meant, this radical and maybe quite upsetting um, shift in approach that national parks managers and conservationists are being forced to um, to consider now in this reality that we live in. Um, I think most of our listeners don't fall into that category of being conservation managers. So um, what would be your message for those of us who, you know, just are appreciators of national parks and, you know, have fond memories of having been to Joshua <laughs> Joshua Tree, or, you know, um, would like for our grandkids years from now to be able to enjoy a national park. What, what is the message for, for us? So, so the message is that our national parks are still going to be here, and the National Park Service is going to do a great job in conserving uh, the natural and cultural resources in our parks. Uh, but we have to recognize that there are these dynamic processes underway, as there always have been, and so um, th there will be the, what you see um, now versus what you will see 20 or 50 years from now will differ. But that's not to say that we can't still um, conserve and, and, and steward a, a phenomenal um, user experience. Uh, and so those of us who are professionals and, and sort of recognize some of the, the differences in the species or the ecosystems that that are there now versus what may be there will notice a lot of these things. I think a lot of uh, visitors may not notice the, the subtleties, but um, I see. I but see. The park but service is going to continue to to do its its uh, its best to to conserve the resources and the user experience. Would Would you like to see the National Park Service? Um, pointing out the changes as part of its educational pro programs moving forward, you know, 50 years from now. I mean, obviously, if you go to Sequoia or to Joshua Tree yeah. and there's like one left, you know, then they'll have to talk about that. But but some of the more subtle differences, too, like we used to have this kind of fox and now we have this kind of fox, that kind of I, thing. I, I, I absolutely think they should. And in fact, in many cases, they already are, because that's part of the mission of the Park Service is to educate and inform the public. And, uh, you know, they already have these great interpretive programs. I mean, again, that's what got, uh, got me uh, interested in biology as a, as a kid. Going to, I mean, my, my family, we spent our vacations visiting national parks all around the West mm. uh, and going on those ranger interpretation walks. And so they've always been interpreting uh, these things and uh, telling the story of climate change and how climate change is affecting uh, the natural world is going to be, you know, just an increasingly important part of that role. Bruce Stein is the chief scientist at the National Wildlife Federation. He has consulted extensively with the National Park Service. He's a leading expert on this topic of conservation in the face of climate change. It's been really nice speaking with you, Mr. Stein. Thanks for your time. Great to speak with you, Julie. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. The conversations in today's episode come from the Top of Mind archive. This is Top of Mind. Today we've collected some of our favorite interviews from past years. Thanks for listening. Having two ears allows humans to hear in stereo, meaning we can tell which direction a sound is coming from. This always gives me a jolt when they do this in the movie theater. Sometimes they'll make the sound 
of the monster, the dinosaur, come from the back corner of the room. And every single time I look over my shoulder instinctually, I'm like, oh, what's back there? Something's coming from back there. Now, the same stereo effect does not apply to the two nostrils in your nose. Maybe because they're too close together. I don't know why it doesn't work that way. But researchers at the University of Chicago are trying to figure it out. And they've even got a little device people can put in their noses to help them smell in stereo. PhD student Jazz Brooks is on the line to talk about this work. Hi there, Jazz. Thanks for your time. Hi, thanks for having me. (laughs) Why would I want to smell in stereo? Uh, Do I really have a need for that? Well, it's kind of an interesting situation. We, in fact, do smell in stereo in everyday life, but we don't actually perceive it. Like, we don't realize we're smelling in in stereo. Um, And so this work was kind of trying to see what would happen if we make people notice it. Uh, And there's a couple different reasons that might might be of interest. There could be uses in safety, for example. Uh, Knowing where a gas leak is coming from is probably a very evident example of that. Um, as well as just experimenting with new experiences for smell. (laughs) Okay, well, I'm thinking of bad smells, and I'm thinking about, you know, (laughs) the last time I walked into my kitchen and I was like, ew, what is that, you know? And then I have to do this whole, like, open the refrigerator and sniff around, and then I'm like, nope, not in there. Go by the trash can, sniff around. Nope, not there, under the counter, right? Like, you have to kind of do this whole stick your nose in places you wish you didn't have to uh, to figure out where the smell is coming from. Um, it doesn't I don't get the sense that I'm able to walk into a room and be like, "Ooh, bad smell to my right. But we, you say we actually can. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you're you're hitting on that exact note, which is that we're not aware that we're able to smell in stereo. It's not something that's like uh, an immediate response unless it's very pungent, for example. So if you had like a really pungent odor that was really strong in one nostril versus the other one, then you're starting to be able to be like, oh, wait, this is more to the left. Mm. But it's a very rare situation in everyday life. Okay, so maybe we need to break down exactly how the smell sensation is is happening um, mm. and, and, you know, sort of what makes it different, say, from, from hearing. Uh, when I detect a scent, and let's stick with the bad scent, all right, there's something rotten in my trash can. When I detect that scent, what, what exactly, am, what's, what's happening for me to recognize it? Yeah, so we basically have two different systems in our body, like in our nose, in fact, that are contributing to that, that perception or how we notice or understand smell. And so there's that first one that's that people might know of called the olfactory bulb. That's going to be giving things like the herb kind of odor of mint, for example. And then you have another one called the trigeminal nerve which is a weird one. A trigeminal and, nerve, you called it? The Okay. Okay. And that's yeah. another actual physical structure in my nose that's separate exactly. from the olfactory bulb. Yep. Okay. And that, that one's going to notice things like the refreshingness of mint or the sharpness of vinegar, for example. And what's basically happening is that when you smell an odor, um, these two uh, nerves essentially are responding to the chemicals in the air and fusing together to create that kind of sensation where you're like, oh, that's the smell of vinegar or that's the smell of mint is the, the combination of the two. Hmm. Um, and so in the difference there, OK, so the olfactory bulb is more of the. The uh, I guess the more nuanced content, so like a, the olfactory mm-hmm. bulb would tell me that what I'm smelling is is mint, like you described, like I would kind of get the, like you said, the herby piece of that. Um, and then and then the trigeminal nerve is just getting that sensation where it, it like kind of clears my nose out. <laughs> like I kind of get this like, ooh, that feels really fresh <laughs> in my nose, that cooler thing. That that's a, that's a different sensation, but it's all tied to the scent itself. Exactly. So huh. that's spot on. Yeah. Huh. Okay. So the trigeminal nerve then, it, let's say that my olfactory bulb is shot. So I am having, I would recognize that I'm having a hard time smelling things, right? Like I wouldn't be mm-hmm. able to tell the difference between the smell of mint and the smell of roses, right? Uh, if I, if my olfactory bulb was gone. But I, if I still had my trigeminal nerve, I would at least be able to detect a difference, some sort of difference between roses and mint, theoretically. Most likely, yes. Okay. Or, or like vinegar and water. You know, I might not be able to smell that it's vinegar. I won't smell the tanginess, but I'll like 
get the tang sensation because my trigeminal nerve is still working. Yep. That's exactly it. Oh, that is really weird. I wonder why they're, I mean, what's the point even of the, like, I feel like I would rather have the olfactory bulb than the trigeminal nerve. I mean, the olfactory bulb at least is going to tell me, ooh, that smells nice. It smells like roses. Whereas the trigeminal nerve is just giving me these weird physical sensations like cold or hot or sour or something like that, right? What's the point? Do you know? Yeah, I think most people consider the trigeminal nerve as kind of like a warning mechanism. So things that are very strong or that you shouldn't be exposing yourself to a lot, like you shouldn't be smelling bleach (laughs) every day. Those kinds of sensations, they kind of like kicks in and it's super noticeable. And that's what people are basically theorizing this nervous base is there for, like a warning mechanism for smell. Mm. Um, Are they located in the same place, like intertwined, the olfactory bulb and the trigeminal nerve? Yeah, so the olfactory bulb, I wish I could, you could see my hands, but it's basically at like inside your nasal cavity. So like in your nose Mm -hmm. at the eye level is where the, most of the nerve endings are. So pretty high up your nose. Yeah. And then like all the the way up basically. So basically where they stuck that um, swab for the COVID test, like when it felt like it went all the way up into my brain, (laughs) they were probably getting close to the, (laughs) to the olfactory bulb. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it it feels like that. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Okay. and then um, the trigeminal nerve is, is a weirder where it's, we actually have like the, the endings of this nerve all over our face, in our mouth, inside our nose, and different regions uh, contribute to different things, right? So the ones in our mouth is going to contribute to things like the spiciness of food and we realize it's food. And the ones in our nose is contributing to that like sensation of, oh, that's the, the, the sharpness or the sourness uh, of vinegar and things like that. And that one's like everywhere. So it's it's in, intertangled, like entangled with the olfactory bulb. Okay. And it also aligns all the way up to the front of the nose and the back. And so getting back then, Jazz Brooks, to the idea of um, being able to smell di- directionally, mm-hmm. um, is which is it the olfactory bulb or the trigeminal nerve that is makes it so that if something is really strong, I can sense the direction that it's coming from? So that's going to be the trigeminal nerve. Oh, okay. Do so. It only really works then in the case of like sour or hot or cold type smells. The directional yeah. thing, like I'd be able to tell if you held bleach up to my right side, I could tell that it's coming from my right side. But if you <laughs> held up, if you held up like chocolate or something, the trigeminal nerve isn't quite as engaged in a smell like that. Yep, and so that's going to be not conscious you won't realize that you're actually your body is responding to it in stereo Hmm. okay so now let's talk about this um this project that you've been working on there at the university of chicago um to try to i guess amplify or or hack the the sense of smell (laughs) what what is the stated goal yeah so it's, it's part of like a larger mission, which is the idea of what can we reproduce in our chemical senses with electrical stimulation, right? So it's, it's, a, it's a sensation when you're trying to use a computer with it that usually requires vials and you refill it because it's chemical stimulation usually. And so doing electrical stimulation avoids all that messiness of a bunch of vials, a bunch of chemical compounds, figuring out how to miniaturize it. And the first step that we thought about was kind of engaging with this unique aspect of the trigeminal nerve, which is that like contribution to stereo sensation. Um, But we got a bunch of other feelings as well. (laughs) Okay. Okay. All right. So, um, so I've seen pictures of this from some, (laughs) from some of the work that you've published in scientific journals. And there's a picture of you. I think it's you with this like nose plug <laughs> that's like jammed up in your nostrils what is, what's going on there yeah yeah so um i will give a shout out to my lab mate shenyuan who's who's the model in that image oh uh, okay okay um, and also a co-author on the paper and uh basically unlike when you want to stimulate like the olfactory bulb which would require you to go all the way up the nose right kind of like the you would have to live with COVID swabs in your nose for the rest of your life. Yeah, okay, no thanks. Um, Yeah, no thanks. I I totally agree with that. This one is basically just a nose clip, right? So 
you can just put it on your septum, kind of like a nose ring. Okay. And just take it off whenever you want afterwards. So that's okay. what you see is like the cable is connecting the two boards of this tiny uh, wireless device. <laughs> okay. Okay. So you can, and, and you can access the trigeminal nerve enough to stimulate it with electrical pulses just using this little nose clip right there on the, on the end of yep. your nose. Okay. So that's, oh, sorry. Well, okay. So <laughs> then, and so then the electrical pulses, <laughs> that's the next piece. So what you're actually doing is um, just like gently zapping with electricity, the trigeminal nerve. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's very gentle. It's nothing uh, I've I've done it a bazillion times to myself, yeah, <laughs> as well as friends, um, and it's it's not painful. It's just very very small zaps. So like a tickle is it like when you're trying to sneeze and your nose is tickling? I would say even less than that. So it's hmm. it's we've had like a, a variety of sensations along with the stereo aspect. So you get like tingliness or the bubbliness of carbonate carbonated beverages oh. or wasabi kind of feeling. You know when you have like a fair amount of wasabi and your entire nose clears up. Yeah. I guess it's similar to peppermint. Um, so we were able to get those kinds of sensations, though we didn't look for them specifically. Um, you were able very, to get those. You could trigger. You could trigger those sensations. So, which is effectively the trigeminal nerve responding, mm -hmm. right? Uh, j j just by sending an electrical tickle, like you weren't actually smelling wasabi that was somehow being amplified through this nose thing. Exactly. Completely virtual in this case. Virtual smells. Yeah. So it was the like, it was the experience of smelling wasabi as recreated by electrical pulses. Yes. <laughs> Why? What's the point of that? I mean, that's not, it's not like this is, at first I thought this was like a hearing aid for smellers, you know? So like if your sense of smell is really bad, then you can put this like nose, nose smelling aid on and it'll like amp up the smells that you might be encountering in the natural world. But that's not mm -hmm. this at all. So I, th I think you're right in the sense that the current paper is more focused on that amplification aspect. Can we add stereo sensation to maybe things that already exist or can you even use that? And then the next step, based on like how we were able to reproduce some of these uh, odd trigeminal sensations or trigeminal smells, hmm. uh, is can we actually go virtual with it, right? Can we recreate like a, a soup or add like spice to something that, that you're eating, for example? Oh, Mostly weird. <laughs> wait, wait. So I could be eating a soup, but I have this... This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. We've collected some of our favorite interviews from past years. Thanks for listening. This is Top of Mind. Today we've collected some of our favorite interviews from past years. Thanks for listening. Having two ears allows humans to hear in stereo, meaning we can tell which direction a sound is coming from. This always gives me a jolt when they do this in the movie theater. Sometimes they'll make the sound of the monster, the dinosaur, come from the back corner of the room. And every single time I look over my shoulder instinctually, I'm like, oh, what's back there? Something's coming from back there. Now, the same stereo effect does not apply to the two nostrils in your nose. Maybe because they're too close together. I don't know why it doesn't work that way. But researchers at the University of Chicago are trying to figure it out. And they've even got a little device people can put in their noses to help them smell in stereo. PhD student Jazz Brooks is on the line to talk about this work. Hi there, Jazz. Thanks for your time. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> Why would I want to smell in stereo? Uh, do I really have a need for that? Well, it's kind of an interesting situation. We, in fact, do smell in stereo in everyday life, but we don't actually perceive it. Like, we don't realize we're smelling in, in stereo. Um, and so this work was kind of trying to see what would happen if we make people notice it. Uh, and there's a couple different reasons that might, that might be of interest. There could be uses in safety, for example. 
uh, knowing where a gas leak is coming from is probably a very evident example of that, hmm. um, as well as just experimenting with new experiences for smell. <laughs> okay, well, I'm thinking of bad smells, and I'm thinking about, you know, <laughs> the last time I walked into my kitchen and I was like, ew, what is that, you know? And then I have to do this whole, like, open the refrigerator and sniff around, and then I'm like, nope, not in there. Go by the trash can, sniff around. Nope, not there. Under the counter, right? Like, you have to kind of do this whole stick your nose in places you wish you didn't have to uh, to figure out where the smell is coming from. Um, it doesn't I don't get the sense that I'm able to walk into a room and be like, "Ooh, bad smell to my right. But we, you say we actually can. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you're you're hitting on that exact note, which is that we're not aware that we're able to smell in stereo. It's not something that's like uh, an immediate response unless it's very pungent, for example. So if you had like a really pungent odor that was really strong in one nostril versus the other one, then you're starting to be able to be like, oh, wait, this is more to the left. Mm. But it's a very rare situation in everyday life. Okay, so maybe we need to break down exactly how the smell sensation is is happening um, mm. and, and, you know, sort of what makes it different, say, from, from hearing. Uh, when I detect a scent, and let's stick with the bad scent, all right, there's something rotten in my trash can. When I detect that scent, what, what exactly, am, what's, what's happening for me to recognize it? Yeah, so we basically have two different systems in our body, like in our nose, in fact, that are contributing to that, that perception or how we notice or understand smell. And so there's that first one that's that people might know of called the olfactory bulb. That's going to be giving things like the herb kind of odor of mint, for example. And then you have another one called the trigeminal nerve is a weird one. A trigeminal and nerve, you called it? The Okay. Okay. And that's yeah. another actual physical structure in my nose that's separate exactly. from the olfactory bulb. Yep. Okay. And that, that one's going to notice things like the refreshingness of mint or the sharpness of vinegar, for example. And what's basically happening is that when you smell an odor, um, these two uh, nerves essentially are responding to the chemicals in the air and fusing together to create that kind of sensation where you're like, oh, that's the smell of vinegar or that's the smell of mint is the, the combination of the two. Mm. Um, and so in the difference there, okay, so the olfactory bulb is more of the, the uh, I guess, the more nuanced content. So like a, the olfactory mm -hmm. bulb would tell me that what I'm smelling is is mint, like you described, like I would kind of get the, like you said, the herby piece of that. Um, and then and then the trigeminal nerve is just getting that sensation where it, it like kind of clears my nose out. <laughs> like I kind of get this like, ooh, that feels really fresh <laughs> in my nose, that cooler thing. That that's a, that's a different sensation, but it's all tied to the scent itself. Exactly. So huh. that's spot on. Yeah. Huh. Okay. So the trigeminal nerve then, it, let's say that my olfactory bulb is shot. So I am having, I would recognize that I'm having a hard time smelling things, right? Like I wouldn't be mm -hmm. able to tell the difference between the smell of mint and the smell of roses, right? Uh, if I, if my olfactory bulb was gone, but I, if I still had my trigeminal nerve, I would at least be able to detect a difference, some sort of difference between roses and mint, theoretically. Most likely. Yes. Okay. Or, or like vinegar and water. You know, I might not be able to smell that it's vinegar. I won't smell the tanginess, but I'll like get the tang sensation because my trigeminal nerve is still working. Yep. That's exactly it. Oh, that is really weird. I wonder why they're, well, I mean, well, what's the point even of the, like, I feel like I would rather have the olfactory bulb than the trigeminal nerve. I mean, the olfactory bulb at least is going to tell me, ooh, that smells nice. It smells like roses. Whereas the trigeminal nerve is just giving me these weird physical sensations like cold or hot or sour or something like that, right? What's the point? Do you know? Yeah, I think most people consider the trigeminal nerve as kind of like a warning mechanism. So things that are very strong or that you shouldn't be exposing yourself to a lot, like you shouldn't be smelling bleach <laughs> every day. <sighs> those kinds of sensations, it kind of like kicks in and it's super noticeable. And that's what people are basically theorizing this nervous base is there for, like a warning mechanism for smell. Mm. Um, are they located in the same place, like intertwined, the olfactory bulb and the trigeminal nerve? Yeah. So the olfactory bulb, I, I wish I could, you could see my hands, but it's basically at like 
inside your nasal cavity, so like in your nose, mm-hmm. at the eye level, okay. is where the most of the nerve endings are. So pretty high up your nose. Yeah. And then like all the, the way trigemal. up, basically. So basically yeah. where they stuck that um, swab for the COVID test, like when it felt like it went all the way up into my brain, <laughs> they were probably getting close to the <laughs> to the olfactory bulb. Yeah. Yeah. It, gets, it, it feels like that. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Okay. And then um, the trigeminal nerve is, is a weirder where it's, we actually have like the, the endings of this nerve all over our face, in our mouth, inside our nose, and different regions uh, contribute to different things, right? So the ones in our mouth is gonna contribute to things like the spiciness of food and we realize it's food. And the ones in our nose is contributing to that like sensation of, oh, that's the, the, the sharpness or the sourness uh, of vinegar and things like that. And that one's like everywhere. So it's it's in, intertangled, like entangled with the olfactory bulb. Okay. And it also lines all the way up to the front of the nose and the back. And so getting back then, Jazz Brooks, to the idea of um, being able to smell di- directionally, mm-hmm. um, is which is it the olfactory bulb or the trigeminal nerve that is makes it so that if something is really strong, I can sense the direction that it's coming from? So that's going to be the trigeminal nerve. Oh, okay. Do so it only really works then in the case of like sour or hot or cold type smells. The directional yeah. thing, like I'd be able to tell if you held bleach up to my right side, I could tell that it's coming from my right side. But if you <laughs> held up, if you held up like chocolate or something, the trigeminal nerve isn't quite as engaged in a smell like that. Yep, and so that's going to be not conscious. You won't realize that you're actually, your body is responding to it in stereo. Hmm. Okay. So now let's talk about this, um, this project that you've been working on there at the University of Chicago um, to try to, I guess, amplify or or hack the the sense of smell. (laughs) What is is the stated goal? Yeah. So it's it's part of like a larger mission, which is the idea of what can we reproduce in our chemical senses with electrical stimulation, right? So it's it's a it's a sensation when you're trying to use a computer with it that usually requires vials and you refill it because it's chemical stimulation, usually. And so doing electrical stimulation avoids all that messiness of a bunch of vials, a bunch of chemical compounds, figuring out how to miniaturize it. And the first step that we thought about was kind of engaging with this unique aspect of the trigeminal nerve, which is that like contribution to stereo sensation. Um, but we got a bunch of other feelings as well. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. So um, so I've seen pictures of this from some, from some of the work that you've published in scientific journals. And there's a picture of you. I think it's you with this like nose plug <laughs> that's like jammed up in your nostrils what is, what's going on there yeah yeah so um i will give a shout out to my lab mate shenyuan who's the, who's the model in that image oh uh, okay okay um, and also a co-author on the paper and uh basically unlike when you want to ba- stimulate like the olfactory bulb which would require you to go all the way up the nose right kind of like the you would have to live with COVID swabs in your nose for the rest of your life. Yeah, okay, no thanks. Um, Yeah, no thanks. (laughs) I I totally agree with that. This one is basically just a nose clip, right? So you can just put it on your septum, kind of like a nose ring, Okay. and just take it off whenever you want afterwards. That's what you see is like the cables connecting the two boards of this tiny uh, wireless device. (laughs) Okay. Okay, so you you can access the trigeminal nerve enough to stimulate it with electrical pulses just using this little nose clip right there on the on the end of yep. your nose. Okay. So that's, oh, sorry. Well, okay, so then, and so then the electrical pulses, <laughs> that's the next piece. What you're actually doing is um, just like gently zapping with electricity, the trigeminal nerve? Yeah, yeah, so it's it's very gentle, it's nothing, uh, I've, I've done it a bazillion times to myself, Yeah. <laughs> as well as friends, um, and it's it's not painful. It's just very very small zaps. So like a tickle. People, is it like when you're trying to sneeze and your nose is tickling? I would say even less than that. So it's hmm. it's we've had like a, a variety of sensations along with the stereo aspect. So you'd get like tingliness or the bubbliness of carbonate carbonate beverages oh. or wasabi kind of feeling. You know when you have like a fair amount of wasabi and your entire nose clears up. Yeah. I guess it's similar to peppermint. 
Um, so we were able to get those kinds of sensations, though we didn't look for them specifically. Um, you were able very, to get those. You could trigger. You could trigger those sensations. So, which is effectively the trigeminal nerve responding, mm -hmm. right? Uh, j j just by sending an electrical tickle, like you weren't actually smelling wasabi that was somehow being amplified through this nose thing. Exactly. Completely virtual in this case. Virtual smells. Yeah. So it was the like it was the experience of smelling wasabi as recreated by electrical pulses. Yes. <laughs> Why? What's the point of that? I mean, that's not, it's not like this is, at first I thought this was like a hearing aid for smellers, you know? So like if your sense of smell is really bad, then you can put this like nose, nose smelling aid on and it'll like amp up the smells that you might be encountering in the natural world. But that's not mm -hmm. this at all. So I, th I think you're right in the sense that the current paper is more focused on that amplification aspect. Can we add stereo sensation to maybe things that already exist, or can you even use that? And then the next step, based on like how we were able to reproduce some of these uh, odd trigeminal sensations or trigeminal smells, hmm. uh, is can we actually go virtual with it? Right? Can we recreate like a a soup or add like spice to something that that you're eating, for example? Oh, Mostly weird. <laughs> wait, wait. So I could be eating a soup, but I have this thing in my nose that is telling me that I'm having some kind of... So I'm experiencing the taste and smell of a soup that I'm not actually eating. It might just be water. That, that could be a potential venue. We're, we're kind of exploring first how how stable those sensations are across people in the next paper. Yeah. Right? Oh, right. Because I might be like, "Ooh, this is a delicious, delicious clam chowder," and you're like, "This tastes like trash." <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. so it may not quite uh, translate because it could be really individual, I guess. Then, and people's sense of smell does seem to vary quite a bit from person to person. Mm -hmm. Some people are super smellers too. Is that because their trigeminal nerve? Does that involve their trigeminal nerve? Like people who are really good, you know, they become perfume or perfumiers or whatever odor experts because they have such a refined sense of smell. Is that is that at all related to the the trigeminal nerve activity, or mostly is it olfactory? Do you know? I think it would be both because they would have to also take into consideration how, like, basically any odor. There's maybe just one compound that doesn't activate the trigeminal nerve. Hmm. So most of the time, if you're training in smell. You're actually training in both. So, okay. And so what if, if somebody loses their sense of smell, which is a thing, and it's really mm -hmm. quite, it can be quite disabling for people uh, to, to not have a sense of smell, because that means you also can't taste most things. Um, could, could what you're working on somehow be like a, a, a replacement for that or a way to restore their sense of smell? But electrically me mechanic like a what am i trying to say like a prosthetic <laughs> like a prosthetic sense of smell yeah i think that's one of the things we're excited about in this in this domain and we're going to start exploring hopefully with another group in the summer and fall and i think the best way to kind of liken this is if if what other researchers are doing which is stimulating the olfactory bulb which is like deep in the nose and they're imagining implants in the future their vision is kind of in the, in the lane of uh, a cochlear imprint for smell, right? Mm. And then this one would be kind of like a weird in between a hearing aid and a cochlear implant in that you can remove it. It doesn't require surgery for having it for a long-term period, mm. um, but it might not produce like the full range of sensations that something like a cochlear implant might be able to do. Right. Well, because a cochlear implant at least... There's there's sound that it is recognizing and sort of delivering to the person in the form of some sort of message, right? Like, mm -hmm. I, I mean, I guess I'm trying to figure out, like, what would be, how would this nose thing that you guys are making, how would it encounter a smell in the wild and translate that into an electrical impulse that I would be able to sort of sense, yeah, yeah. That's the other half of the project that requires additional work. And there's a lot of labs doing great work on the sun, which is kind of uh, 
odor sensors or gas sensors? How do you actually mm. read the air and understand what gases are in the air that we should be perceiving or not perceiving? Right. And so there might have to be some sort of like a sensor wand. <laughs> like I could maybe be like, mm, let me get a whiff of you. And and I'd be wearing this thing and I would sort of wave my wand in front of you. And then th that would maybe pick something up and be like, oh, I'm detecting perfume. And then it would send that impulse to my nose. Yeah. And there's some gas sensors that they might respond to a bunch of different things. Um, but there's some of them that are already small enough that hypothetically we could make another version of the board with them integrated directly. Hmm. Uh, and they would be able to respond to things like carbon monoxide, like give you the ability to smell something that you can't smell currently. Oh, um, or oh wow. So like, that would be like a superhuman thing where normally <laughs> you can't smell carbon monoxide, but you could you could rig it up so that I so that I would smell it. Exactly. Yeah, because huh. it's it's basically what we did is is kind of uh, work on the output side of things. Like how do we produce the sensation that we want to actually create. And then the other half is like that input. And so depending on what you put as like the gas sensor, you could either give people like a superhuman ability or roughly like correlate whatever is like in the air to what you think the person should be smelling. Um, so that could be foods, that could be uh, natural gas leak, like Mercaptan mm. or something like that. Yeah. But yeah. Well, I guess finally, Jazz Brooks, I'm just so curious to know if, like, if there was some point in your childhood where you were like, mmm, smells, I'm going to one day invent a mechanical nose. <laughs> I need to figure <laughs> out, is this, is, has this long been an obsession of yours, or is it just something you fell into as a PhD researcher? Um, I think it really developed in my university days. There were, like, some pretty wild experiences related to smell that made me think, like, well, this is kind of an odd medium that just when it happens and your attention is focused on it, it's almost like everything else washes out. And I thought that was such a fascinating situation and experience. Jazz Brooks is a PhD student in computer science at the University of Chicago. Good luck with your work. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much and thanks for having me. This is Top of Mind, I'm Julie Rose. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. Ciara Hewlett, Cleon Wall, and Kyle Remond produced the show. Today's episode was curated from Top of Mind's vast archive of past conversations. I hope you enjoyed hearing some of our favorites. You can find more, lots more, from Top of Mind on the free BYU Radio app. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. <laughs>